Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. In today's show, I'm receiving Chad Frischman, one of the co-creators of Project Drawdown and founder of Regen Intelligence. We talk about Project Drawdown's historical book and insights from those enormous research and studies, Chad's new role to continue spreading the word in a different way, how Chad deals with the lack of progress, eco-anxiety, and the looming risk rising. We even touch on geoengineering, the spiritual journey, yin and yang, and finding balance to sustain the long personal journey to driving positive impact. This is a packed episode. Enjoy it. Chat, welcome to Climate Insiders. Hi, Yohan. It's great to be here. To get things started, how would your best friend finish the sentence? Chat Frischman is... Awesome. Chad Frischman. You know what a lot of my best friends say? Chad is rad. And I'm old enough to know what rad actually means. <laughs> So what does rad mean to you from a climate perspective and all the cool things that you... Well, I think it goes beyond just being cool, right? I mean, being cool is fair enough, but being rad is like a level up. It's like being cool, but also authentic with integrity, empathy, and compassion. That is a rad guy. It's funny because people that don't, that, that sort of don't know you personally would go check you out on TED or YouTube, stuff like that. And you don't sound a rad guy, meaning more you know, controlled and, you know, you, you own your topic, but you don't show that. I appreciate that, Yohan. I do because, you know, it's funny. You're not the first person to say this. I, you know, I joined this amazing community called Future Horizon, which is shout out to that great community there. And, you know, when I was talking to the founders, they said, well, we were a little intimidated after hearing your talks about climate science and solutions, but then we got to know you and we realized you're pretty rad. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any takeaway from this interview, that's it. You got it. You guys can just dial it down. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're going to start, you know, it, this is going to be a wide ranging conversation. Obviously, you had a really long hat, you know, uh, Project Drawdown. You have a new role now at Regen Intelligence. You're also launching a new education program. So there's all those kind of things in the program. But first, I want to preface and I want to say that, you know, you probably hear this all the time, but I'm very appreciative of all the Project Drawdown's work, you know, that you've done all those years. You publish a lot of uh, instrumental material that helps most VCs in the space conduct their own work. You know, when we do an impact assessment and we're trying to assess which companies we should invest in, we refer to that kind of monster work that Project Drawdown has, has put together. So a big thank you on behalf of the community. Oh, well, thank you. And I really do also appreciate that. You know, I do hear that a lot and it always makes me really happy to hear because the, honestly, when we, when we launched Trotta and we founded it with uh, Paul Hawken and Amanda Ravenhill, myself, we didn't think anyone was going to really pay attention. 
we didn't think it was going to be that exciting. A list of solutions. We almost were like, duh, why doesn't this even exist already in the world? Obviously. Um, and we saw some stuff that was out there, but it wasn't substantiated by real science, real data. It wasn't really bringing together the, the vast brilliance of humanity together in one spot, one, one place. And that's what we set out to do. And amazingly, after, you know, three, four years of really heads down doing that work and that research, getting that data together, the product is draw down the book. And that's really influenced so many folks. And so it was really a joy to be there for eight years being, you know, it was my baby, you know, as one of the creators there. And, and, and so it's really was wonderful to see it have such influence out into the world. Um, it definitely did. Yeah. Well, now we're years after the sort of the, the, the first publication of it, you had a, a sort of reprint or, you know, in 2020, is drawdown still possible by 2050? You know, this is probably the question that you get asked all the time, but given how things are trending, we haven't even picked in the increase of annual emissions. The reversing still seems so far away. Do you still believe in it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, not only did we, you know, up, upgrade, if you will, the report, uh, the book in 2020, but then again in 2022, just before I left, we had a whole new range of solutions. And the reality is, as you often hear in the media who kind of filters a lot of the science, you hear that the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target uh, recommended by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to be sort of the, the, the target humanity needs to set to avoid some of the worst case scenarios and tipping points uh, in our Earth systems. You hear often, particularly recently, that that's impossible. We're, we're going to somehow uh, never be able to achieve it. And the reality is it is absolutely achievable but we have to understand what the science is actually telling us. It is telling us that by 2100, a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target is required, but every single model that, that's produced, or everyone that I, most of them that I see, always show an oversuit and then goes back down again. What I mean by that is, that is drawdown. That is that point of when you start to reverse global warming and go back down to a 1.5, and every 1.5 scenario has it and has had it since 2014. So I want to like stress that point, like it is possible. The science is still saying it's possible. And I think what it really takes is a shift in our political uh, will and the will of businesses and institutions to make these transformations and not get caught up with, you know, the incremental change and get caught up with, oh, pessimism that it's not mm. going to happen. Really, we need to move forward a lot faster. Yes, but it is possible. All right. Well, so that that's that's good news, and I'm gonna to try to challenge that a little bit because from what I've seen, right, in the in sort of my my seven years in the climate space, is just a, a reverse correlation between all the conferences and what has been announced and those government pledges and all that stuff, and the actual emissions continuing climbing up, up, up at even an accelerating pace. So, just how do you how do you keep hope when you when you you see all those this work sort of that sort of the army, the silent army gets, but that the guys at the top in at the head of governments or corporates don't seem to fully abide by. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think the key for me is understanding being grounded in reality. And when we think about the reality of our Earth systems, we are not going to get to 100% renewable energy by 2030. It's not going to happen. We're not going to get to 100% regenerative agriculture globally by 2030, 2040, maybe even not even 2050. That shouldn't stop us from really be implementing these solutions, 
at any scale that we can. And um, so, yes, we're not the governments aren't making, you know, achieving their pledges, which are already well below what they really need to be doing. And we see that. And there were already laggards in that. We're seeing that in business. We're seeing that across the board. So what I want to ground myself in the reality is this. I am optimistic because I actually believe if we can get not 100%, but 30%, it's just a random number I'm picking at the top of my brain here, but if we get 30% of the whole system to be a regenerative model, to be implementing solutions, I think that by 2030 or, or so on, I think that we can actually pivot at that point and have enough of the system operating in a regenerative way that we can dramatically increase uh, and accelerate the rate in which we are making that transition. So my goal is actually, how do I get the system to be about 30% of the whole, like imagine the market being, the whole system being a market. If I can get about 30% of that regenerative, I think we can actually get through this and accelerate the transition when it comes because it will be needed. Now, Mm -hmm. people know this, Jan, for me, they think of me as the eternal optimist, the, the positive guy in climate, and I am. But the reality is that already built into the system, already built into the system are uh, catastrophic losses, right? Even if we stopped emissions today, we still will be experiencing a response of Earth systems to what's already up there. And that's going to happen. I don't know when. It could be five years from now. It could be seven years from now. It could be less. And when that happens, it's going to be such a trauma. And I, I... I don't want to scare people in this. This is not doom and gloom, but it's going to be such a trauma that we can't continue to do business as usual. It just simply won't be possible. We're going to have catastrophic losses of scales that we cannot ignore, no matter where we are in the world. A dear colleague, Kim Stanley Robinson, wrote Ministry of the Future. That is not a Uh crazy scenario. That's actually probably going to happen. So we have to brace ourselves to that reality of what's already into the system. But if we have 30% of that system by that time operating in a regenerative way, then when we're forced to make that shift because of that trauma that we're actually experiencing and built into the system, enough of the system is there that capital can flow, that business can become operable all over the world, and it's already enough of the system to strengthen and then accelerate the implementation of solutions. And that's what actually makes me optimistic. I know it doesn't sound, it sounds maybe like doom and gloom, but I think it's grounded in reality, allows me to actually be optimistic and have determination to implement, to, 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 to change the way we're operating today to as much as I can before that happens. Right. So that's kind of plan B, right? Plan A is already out of the window. Plan B is 30%. Plan C, it seems to me, and there's a lot of experts that seem to converge in that, in that reality is we might get to 5%. Uh, but the plan for rapid transformation will be on the table so that when the shit hits the fan, when catastrophes start piling up, COVID scale, the governments won't have the choice, right? The people will right. want it. The circumstances will push everything and we were going to be go all in, v- probably very late, but still going to you know swing and do rapid swings in, in that positive direction. Another question that I have is kind of personal interest is, do you feel closer to the venture world, the venture capital world or the political world, because those are kind of the two sides of the spectrum that are trying to implement the project drawdown and everything that you put together in the real life. Oh, you know, that's a very good question. When I think about change, I often have said this over the years, we often think about top down 
approaches to this. And that's often seen as, you know, policy and government and the government top-down regulation, regulatory mechanisms, financial mechanisms that come from government, uh, policies, laws, et cetera. Very important. And there's no question about that. Or, or bottom-up, that is somehow the role of every individual to transform the way we do business. And I often say, yes, there is a role for bottom-up. There's a role for everybody to take a, uh, you know, to change and to opt to be uh, a part of the solution that we want to achieve. And it's top down as well. We need, we need that. But most importantly, our institutions, the institutional change, I call that the middle out, right? And this is, you know, business, the financial institutions, educational institutions, cultural institutions, that has to change because that's where actually most emissions are happening. Government's not producing a ton of emissions itself, to be honest. I mean, obviously, it's part of the market and, and, and contributing to it. And the military is a huge you know, uh, mm-hmm. emitter. Uh, but, but bottom up, again, individuals, by and large, you and I, Yon, aren't really producing a lot of emissions ourselves. Um, maybe the choices we make, but our choices are limited by what the institutions provide us. So, so take this as just an example. Imagine the entire system, um, which I always like to do. I like to imagine everything like together. Imagine like a grocery store, right? Uh, you you know, and a consumer goes into that grocery store. If ninety percent of what's on the shelf is contributing to the problem, ten percent is contributing to the solution. And and, and let's be honest, of that ten percent, the vast majority, eight percent, is actually being produced by the same corporations and companies that are producing the problems on those shelves called greenwashing. And 2% or 3% are actual real solutions. Is it the consumer's fault for not being able to find under the clever marketing that prevents that from uh, prevents them from finding it or being able to afford those solutions? No. I mean, the reality is when you really think about it, it's not. Consumer choice is an illusion. We don't have a tremendous amount of consumer choice when the vast majority of what's on the shelves in that grocery store, which is the principal, like, like a... a storefront or the physical like a way we operate as consumers um, is all part of the problem so at the end of the day producers produce emissions and that's that's what i think really the transformation has to happen is from businesses and then the investors that are funding and providing capital to those businesses have to without fail say impact number one return on investment number two and that or redefine what return on investment even means to incorporate impact in addition to profitability. So businesses have to change 100% because they are the ones actually producing emissions and putting that those emissions, if you will, on the shelf. And that's emissions, biodiversity loss, uh, human health problems, uh, destruction of our oceans, all of that is coming not from consumers choosing that. Consumers don't want that. They're just choosing what's on the shelf. And so we need more things on the shelf that are part of the solution. So I, I say, you know, businesses, most important. I, I, I really need, we need to transform that. And we need investors in the financial market and institutions to be pouring capital into solutions, not vice versa. Right. And right. another debate that comes up a lot is what is the actual role of innovation versus existing technology and policy making? So really taking from using your analogy, uh, what's off the shelf from spending enormous budgets to innovate and coming up with new products. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite topics on really it, it is because again, I mean, hearkening back to the drawdown world, 
the whole premise of what we did when we created that. Um, and I really designed that whole solutions framework. So I chose what solutions were on that list and what solutions were not, which technology and price were not on this list. So I made those decisions. And what I really wanted to focus on were existing technologies and practices, real mm -hmm. working technologies that we know based on science and data are working, that are already being implemented, that are scalable, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the entire premise of Drawdown. But we also had coming attractions in that book, if you remember, in the old days. The new, the new crew at Project Drawdown is not you, we're thinking so much about coming attractions, but in that book, we really profiled 20 coming attractions. Those are innovations, technologies on the pipeline waiting to be introduced into that system. And, and I want to highlight that because I think there are two things to say about innovation. One, we need to be innovating the hell out of what already exists. So instead of inventing some brand new silver bullet technology, which is not going to come along, and when it gets into the system, it's not going to suddenly transform everything. It's just not going to happen. Not a single silver bullet technology that's touted as silver bullet uh, that I have seen even comes close to, to being a real silver bullet. It doesn't exist. But... You know, we, if you look at solar panels, we need to make them so uh, more, so much more efficient and resource productive. So we're using less and less and less materials to produce more and more and more uh, generation. So, it, you know, you know, allowing greater capacity uh, for installations of solar with an increased generation, but much, much less resources that are used so that we can actually have that system. It's just an example. And that's across the board. We need to be innovating the hell about uh, 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 with the solutions and technologies that already exist and make them more efficient, more resource productive, more economically viable and scalable today. And, and don't lose sight of those new technologies that come along that when entering into that system of solutions are actually going to accelerate us that much faster. That's how we're actually going to get even more to that 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target sooner is when those innovations come back into the system, come into the system alongside the innovations of existing technologies. All right. So what about you probably mentioning referring to carbon capture or something that can extract, right? And get us closer to the actual initial projections. What about geoengineering in there? Is Oof. it still taboo in your view of the world or when, when are we going to pass and, and this is going to jump into the mainstream? You know, I think um, I'm deeply concerned about geoengineering. Um, and I, you know, I, we can talk a lot about direct air capture, carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and use. This is a different thing, enhanced weathering, etc. But geoengineering is a real concern of mine. Um, there's too many unknowns um, about the longer term impacts of any any geoengineering uh, technology that I've uh, 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 that I've come across. And um, my biggest concern. And I almost am reluctant to say this online, even though even though it's been it's been said by many, it's been said by me and Beth. But like I, I just don't like to keep reiterating it. But anyone can do it; they're cheap. I am really concerned about geoengineering uh, solutions because some crazy or potentially thoughtful, whatever you want to call it, a uh, 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 billionaire can, you know, launch this. Uh, you know, can can implement a solution overnight uh, without any regulation, without it. And uh, it's really concerning to me uh, that these are so easily um, deployable and, mm -hmm. and so cheap that just about anybody can do it. So there's so much more research that needs to be done about the implications of any type of geoengineering. Um, and yeah, I kind of think, you know, leave it to the academics and the researchers in universities and laboratories under really confined conditions to experiment and 
in some true doomsday scenario, you know, and it's a lifeboat mechanism. Okay, like let's 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 leave that to a scenario that's the worst case scenario imaginable. And until then, don't even put it on the table. Um, and my concern is that some 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 rich billionaire or some small state country with a, mm-hmm. a you know a, a, you know a, that's 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 you know. I hesitate to say rogue state, but you know what I mean. That can just will just act on something, and and cause great devastation. To protect their own interest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you mentioned the Ministry for the Future? We are not far from that scenario where a wet bulb thirty five event wiping out millions of people in a highly densely populated area like Nigeria, like uh, India, Bangladesh, would trigger this kind of event. Right. The collapse of the global. Mm-hmm. order and then the regionalization of decisions and then a, a country like India deciding to, to spread aerosols in the air to cool down regionally the temperatures. And then in, geoengineering can take so many shapes and forms, right? Pumping water back on the Arctics so that you regenerate the, the melting poles, et cetera, et cetera. So in your opinion, this is still taboo. We should not even mention that. Still stay at the mitigation side of the spectrum using this kind of technology well, yeah, I mean, I think mitigation and adaptation solutions, and oftentimes they're the same thing. You know, we often want to dichotomize this into one area or the other, but a really good mitigation solution is actually part of an adaptation because it allows us to adapt to those changes in the environment uh, and, uh, yeah. and, and many kinds of adapt- shocks to our economic and social and, and environmental systems. So a good mitigation strategy is like renewable energy system, you know, regenerative built environment, regenerative agriculture, all of these things are actually adaptation as well as mitigation solutions. Um, but yes, I, you know, and you know, the pumping of water on the Arctic, yeah, that I think still needs more uh, thoughtful approach to it. But, you know, there are some, <laughs> there are some, uh, 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 geoengineering that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more inclined to like, ah, maybe this would be more interesting. I have to see more about the science. I have to see where, you know, where it's mm-hmm. going. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, so, but there's, as you said, there's many different kinds. Um, and so, uh, it, it just, it's, it's a, it needs to be highly, highly regulated, controlled, um, and not in the hands of business investors or government, but funded by, uh, international bodies and having teams of scientists in charge of this. International cooperation needs to be at the center of any any sort of geoengineering solution. Now, let's come back to today to Rad Chad or Chad Rad. <laughs> Why did Chad Rad <laughs> decide to leave such a beautiful organization that he contributed to growing? Project Drawdown. You've probably spoken about this, but at the personal level, kind of the intimate level, I wanted to understand that decision. And, and do you think in, in your... Uh, your, your life mission where you want to dedicate probably the rest of your life to that mission. Why do you think your role had to change? Oh, well, you know, a lot of people ask me, why did you leave your baby? I mean, it was your baby mm-hmm. for so long. And I often say, um, well, I, I, I nurtured that baby till it was on its own two feet and let it carry on. Uh, and I also happened to give birth to twins. And so I'm not raising three kids at once, you know, one of them's got to be out of the house and I got two kids now. <laughs> <laughs> we launched two new organizations and, and, and I think we launched those organizations because we really saw the core original vision of drawdown was really what is the system what is the system of solutions that can stop and reverse global warming but at the same time if we do those solutions right uh, can be a catalyst to create a regenerative economy 
So Paul, uh, Amanda, myself, we're actually come not necessarily as we're not, none of us are atmospheric physicists. None of us are, you know, you know, uh, true hardcore climate scientists like, you know, uh, Michael Mann or Catherine Hayhoe or something like this. Um, we actually come from a very different space. Paul is an entrepreneur, right? And, and an author. And Amanda is a coalition builder and a, a systems thinker. And I actually came from a space of sustainable development, uh, environmental conservation, and local and indigenous uh, rights and well, uh, people's rights and well-being. And these are the frontline issues, of course, to a changing climate. And that, that's where, you know, the, 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 the idea to find that system of solutions for climate came from. But... Uh, uh, it's really, we got together with this audacious idea. What if we could solve climate change and at the same time, try to solve everything else, right? How do we solve our sustainable development goals? How do we uh, preserve and protect our environment and our biodiversity? And how do we actually create a regenerative social and economic structure and system that benefits humanity and the planet? If we can do that, that was the real goal of Drawdown in the early days. And so we felt, I felt that over the eight years of leading Drawdown, um, we really hyper-focused on the climate piece. And even though all of my talks reference regenerative economies and regenerative thinking and, and one of the classic lines, I, I always, I still say to this day, we want these solutions, whether or not global warming was even a problem. Mm -hmm. right? And so that gave birth to Regen Intel. Uh, and the twins, actually, Global Solutions Alliance is our nonprofit organization. And then Regen Intel or Regenerative Intelligence, which is our public benefit partnership. And so that gave birth to these two organizations. And their mission, essentially, of these two organizations is to help accelerate our transition to a regenerative economy by guiding humanity to become a planet positive species, um, which is frankly a little bit more audacious and ambitious than even solving global warming because it's part of it. So, yeah, that, that led us to like, leave Drawdown after eight years in a good position to continue walking its course uh, and then give birth, uh, give birth to these two new things, which are incredibly excited about. Yeah, absolutely. So you are launching soon a education program. So part of spreading ideas is to train, right? educate, to transmit, uh, to make sure that people, you leave people with the first step so they can carry on. Can you tell us more about this? Oh, yeah. So, so our, our core thesis here with Regen Intel is how do we equip people and organizations with the right tools uh, to solve for their uh, climate targets, their sustainability goals, but embed that with regenerative principles so that we can upskill, if you will, uh, 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 organizations and individuals to be regenerative leaders of the future economy today. So how can we get more people thinking about, you remember I mentioned that 20, 30% of the system are generative. How do we get that 20, how do you really equip them with the tools to do that? And then the future economy, which is, I think, inevitable, we were, eventually humanity is going to create a regenerative economy, but how do we get more and more leaders and organizations today to be opting into that, uh, those principles and, uh, and, uh, uh, but also solving their, their climate targets and sustainability goals? Can I challenge that? Why would it be inevitable? Isn't there a scenario where a status quo perdures until the end of time, until the collapse of our civilization? Oh, of course there's a scenario. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. If, if inevitable in the sense of if we actually want to ensure that humanities, the, the systems that we're currently operating and the benefits that we are experiencing as a, as a species um, continue, 
then we have to create a regenerative economy. If we are happy with a collapse of our economic system and massive disruption and population loss, and, and we're actually we're seeing a, a dramatic, even far fewer zones of of uh, zones of uh, of continued uh, um, of the continued operation of our system today, it's going to shrink down, right? And the world of the future, if we don't create this, if we don't solve climate change, if we don't solve the biodiversity collapse, that is actually even more threatening to our way of life than climate change. And these are two inter- two things that are inextricably intertwined. Where our way of life is going to be entirely different, and it's not going to be good for billions of people it's not going to be that mm-hmm. if we want to have billions of people not only survive but live productive happy joyful lives uh we need to create a regenerative economy and so that's why i say it's inevitable and maybe that's why i'm an optimist because i actually believe and want to see every human on this planet to have their well-being fulfilled in the most joyful way in connection and concert with nature so that's what it means to be planet positive. And that, that to me is like, we, we need to be there. Otherwise we're talking about a, a dystopian future, which I don't think anyone, even, even, you know, the people who are the, the, the power mongers of our current system, they don't actually want that for that future. So I, I think it actually is inevitable that humanity will evolve into that regenerative economy, 2100 beyond that's the trajectory we're on now. But right. my right. life's ambition is to fast forward that as much as possible. Um, uh, so that we, we get there sooner. And you consider yourself a mission-derived person as opposed to being a mission-driven one. So what does that mean to you? Oh, yes. Thank you for asking that, Johan. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't often get asked that very much. So I really appreciate it. So um, when I think about a mission-driven person, this is someone in my mind who... Uh, it's like in a car, right, on a road, and they're in control of their vehicle, and they're going at all costs down the highway or whatever. Um, and it's a much like to be mission driven is I'm going to achieve that goal. I'm going to get to that point, no matter what the cost. That's the one trajectory. A mission derived person. This is why I associate myself in this way: is whatever I do, however I operate in the world, whatever organization I launch or work for, at whatever scale, it's going to serve the mission. The mission is operating within me. I come from the mission. I'm not driving it. I'm not, I'm not putting my blinders on and looking, okay, this is the way I'm going to go. I'm going to see like the, the zone of opportunity and flow with the system, flow with how um, life is coming to me and know that what I do is going to serve that mission because I'm derived from it. And it's a little bit of a, it's like a fundamental shift, I think in, it's, it's maybe a subtle shift, but it is a fundamental shift in how you think about how we operate in the world. Um, and, and the people around us, I think, you know, when you're mission derived, you tend to be more collaborative. You tend to work together more with people. You're not, you're, you're, you're less focused on yourself succeeding and you're more focused on the group or the community succeeding because that's what that's about. It's about the mission succeeding, not you being driven to achieve your, you know, being the one to achieve the mission. It's, it's the mission itself. And so that really carries through in all of the work that I do. Um, and it really centers me a lot. It allows me to like feel very happy with life because I know that however things happen and whatever comes my way and whoever I meet, um, I'm going to approach that with that, you know, mission derived vantage point and feeling, and that's going to make, I'm going to know what comes from that is going to serve the mission in the right way. 
Uh, I'm not going to do at all costs, say like, I have to be the one to do this. I don't need to be a hero. I don't want to be a hero. I'd rather be one of many leaders. And I think that that comes from being mission-derived. So it's funny because I've gone through a bit, bit of a journey on my own trying to understand where that mission comes from, right? That drive, the gut feeling sort of just embedded in my DNA, it feels like at times. And I feel I need to carry that responsibility. Uh, do, do you feel the same way? And how do you... So, so where does that come from? And and you, mm. it seems like you're also evolving in your own way. So, so I often look at the Asian or the Oriental way of you know breaking down the yin and yang forces. The yang is what drives you, the ambition, the idea of you, I'm going to be very active uh, in my quest to be impactful. And the yin is kind of the more grounding force, letting the forces of universe kind of take care of everything around you. Are you also going from yang to yin and kind of accepting that the faith of the world uh, or or are you still very much yang driven? Oh, yeah. No, I think um, I'm very much in the flow of what the world brings to me. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about ambition, again, oftentimes I think in our culture, we associate ambition with ego and it's so embedded with our own egotistical drive and we all have ego and there's a healthy amount of ego that's, that's good. Um, but I also think like culturally we assume that to be ambitious and to be successful, you have to be that strong hyper ego and have to be so mission driven. And I actually think, uh, the most powerful and influential and inspiring people that I have been blessed to encounter in the world. Um, you know, it's, 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 there are, they're ambitious because the mission they serve, the mission they're derived from is so ambitious. It's so audacious that whatever they're doing in service of that mission is going to be really ambitious and, and, and it does fuel them, but it, it's that ego, the yin that's coming in there is like cooling down that ego part of it and saying, you are actually serving a greater purpose. And when you serve that greater purpose, um, you bring a lot more power into it. That's, that, that's, that's a healthy uh, amount of power and ambition that comes from the from the vision that you are inspired to create, inspired to nurture, uh, inspired to be part of. Um, and and so, yeah, I think it's a, a definitely I, I go into that flow um, uh, all the time. Um, but again, I, as you heard, you see from a lot of my talks you've mentioned earlier, like I, I'll talk science with you, I'll talk data with you. No problem. Let's go with the hardcore numbers. A lot of people also think yeah. if you get too into the yin and yang thing and the flow, you become sort of this uh, hippie. And I, I'm kind of woo-woo too. I mean, I like my crystals and I also like my data and my science. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that stuff <laughs> You have multiple weapons, right? Weapons of choice. So I also want to kind of add an intimate personal level you probably have people around you that are still stuck in the matrix. It's kind of what I describe it. People that just do not understand the new circumstances that surround us and the threat that's coming, right? So they still want to get a loan, sorry, a, a mortgage for a 20 or 30 year kind of house. They just want to get a job. They're still kind of stuck in the material requirements. And how do you try to convince those people that there's a new reality, that this should also be purpose-driven? Are you kind of let them be stuck in their own reality are you sort of a person that will try to advocate and and change people or no you're looking too much at the macro level no well oh that's a super good question yeah no i you know here, here's a little anecdote um 
<laughs> personal, very personal one. Uh, over the years, I've had some really loving, wonderful partners, and none of them have been in this space. None of them have been working in climate or uh, sustainability, or and, and for somehow I find myself in this loving relationship with these wonderful humans. Currently, now you know, for example, um, my partner's a psychiatrist, and he doesn't know much about sustainability and climate. And I I talk to him about what I do, and I. I kind of guide and steer our lifestyle to ensure that um, it is sustainable uh, and it, it, that we, we are living a life of purpose and, and, and solutions in our life. But I don't try to force the issue on him or previous partners, for example. And the reason I'm bringing up this kind of a personal context is because I think that kind of illustrates how I operate in the world. How can I show what is possible without blaming, shaming, convincing, arguing, you know, trying to say you have to change because you're the problem. No, no, no. I'd rather show what is possible, what I can do in the world and what people like me can do in the world and show that as like, as like a valuable way to be. But I never want to shame. I never want to blame. I never want to try to convince. And I think when your question is about, do you try to change individuals behavior, I think, you know, uh, there are, there are ways to influence others. I want to change institutions. I want to change those in individuals who have the power over those institutions to shift those levers. Those are the people I want to focus on. And yes, I will focus on them. I will definitely want to focus on them rather than just the macro, but like focus on the people who have the power to change mm. and refuse to, they're the ones who should be, you know, really hyper-focused on not, not sort of just you know, everybody needs to change. Uh, I really want to, I want to make sure that we hone in on that point. And there's some been really great campaigns. I think have been coming out that are a little bit controversial. Um, Future Earth, for example, has put out a campaign pointing fingers at uh, the individual, the people behind oil and gas companies and saying, these are the actual people who are making the decisions. Um, and I support that actually. It took me a long time to get there. Yeah. Can I challenge that a little bit? Because in my view, it's a bit like the political system. The people in power will never adopt a reform or change the system when it's not popular. Right? They're not going to push something that is non-popular. That's not a way to gain votes. So in, in a way, almost needs to rise to a level of popularity or the people that are in their ranch playing golf, they need to triangulate information from their buddies mm -hmm. that it is time to change, right? It is time to operate corporates in a different way, that alternative uh, alternative forms of growth is better. I don't think the CEO of Shell will just be influenced in, in his own way when his circle, the five people that he spends the most time with, do not think at all in the ecological way. So in a way, it comes hand in hand. You need to force both sides of the of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. No, no, no. And it's, I don't think that's actually a challenge, to be honest. I think that's, you know, I, I would totally reinforce that. Um, I think advocacy is incredibly important. I think activism is incredibly important. I think getting people in communities uh, 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 to, to uh, you know, get onto the, go onto the streets and to call their, 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 their politicians and to force as much as they can, sure. 100%. Absolutely. And this is actually why I'm referring to that Future Earth campaign. I think they're popularizing this by, 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 by getting it out on the social media to say, actually, let's focus on the getting the popular. And now, granted, this is not a, like necessarily like the uh, most like positive uh, kumbaya, you know, kind of way to do it. It's kind of 
you know, really pointing fingers, but it's a way to get, you know, more people to say like, look, we keep being told by these institutions that we all have to change and we all mm-hmm. can't change. It's too hard because again, grocery scenario, 90% of what's on the shelf is not there. So it's part of the problem. So, so we, it's hard for us to change um, and it's our fault. But this is also a ploy of the oil and gas company. This is part of their propaganda campaign to say, oh, it's all about your individual footprint. You know, let's focus on BP famously, always talking about individual footprints. The reality is, is BP <laughs> needs to change. Not all of these people need to change. And so that, right. that sort of distortion of where responsibility really is, is lands, I think is part of the problem. Yes, get more and more people out there to popularize the will to do this. Um, but I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, we need uh, to change the, 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 the leadership in these corporations and companies that continue to do this um, and help guide and steward. I mean, that's what role of Regen Intel. I mean, we have our education stuff that we just launched, but we also have our Regen Intel transformation. It's a global advisory. We work directly and we are um, wanting to increasingly work more and more with organizations and corporations to say, hey, let's meet you where you're at. We get where you're going, where you are at the right now. How do we help you achieve your climate targets? How do we help you achieve your sustainability goals and embed that with regenerative principles so you could lead the pack, so you could lead the way, right? And so, so we want to target organizations that are willing and wanting to make change, and we help to guide you through it, right? Because part of the problem, I think, a lot in this space is we assume, well, like the drawdown, we assume we just put out a book and do mm. a bunch of talks and 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 you know, update these solutions and then everyone's just going to adopt them. The reality is it's, it's fine to say, what are the solutions and what is possible? But at the end of the day, we got to help people and organizations and those leaders say, how do you actually do it? And that, and that's still not there. And that's what region Intel is kind of all about. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Thank, I mean, thanks so much for the, for this role. And since we kind of touched on personal matters, the last question I would have for you is how do you deal with eco-anxiety? I mean, this is also something where I agree with you just as a, uh, it's a preface to, to this question is we need to impact those people that are in control of corporates. We also need to nurture the people like you that are at the forefront of this fight that might lose the fuel because they've been doing this for too long. And eco-anxiety is one of them. I don't know if you have any uh, kind of tricks there. Mm, well, that's a, that's a great question. I do a lot of meditation uh, and yoga. Um, and I like to surround myself with really loving humans, um, and community. And I think what allows me to deal with eco anxiety, it's a real thing that we who have been in this business for a long time Mm -hmm. feel every day. And probably almost every young person to some extent feels every day because they, it's their future that they know is in jeopardy. Um, and, so it's, I think, you know, it's hard, but I think it's, it's, it's that sense of coming together, really. Uh, it's collaboration. That's the only way we can deal with this type of anxiety um, when we are working uh, on such ambitious, audacious things, uh, mission-derived things, um, and there's not a lot of reward. Uh, because we don't, again, because we're not washed with money coming in to support us, and we're not, we're not these, like, the green the rich, wealthy green groups that like, you know, some of the, um, some of the, uh, uh, companies or corporations or, or, or the right wing side of the equation, like to say, Oh, it's all just some kind of ploy to make more, you know, people wealthier. We're not actually, you know, so part of what it, it you know, 
I'm kind of babbling here a little bit, so sorry to close with this in this way, but you'll, you'll cut all this out in the end. Um, <laughs> the, key, the, key, the key thing is, I think the point I want to make is it's, we struggle a lot in this space and there's burnout, there's anxiety. We're not compensated enough. We are considered to be on the fringe and we're niche. I mean, we're still niche in this world. We're a tiny percentage of the, of the voices that are yeah. out there that are trying. And we've been doing it for a long time. And, uh, and so it's really hard. And the only thing that actually I think we can do is take time for self-care, meditation, yoga, walking, being in nature, all these things that fuel me. Uh, I'm also on a shamanic journey myself. Uh, so so I go down to Ecuador with a, with a wonderful shaman, indigenous uh, person, indigenous uh, leader called Kurakindi, um, uh, one of the great uh, uh, indigenous leaders, I think, in the world. You know, he's training me to be to be a shaman, and and part of that process, of, awesome. uh, yeah, it's it's a part of that is like how you take care of yourself and how you look to your inner self and work on your inner self in collaboration and community with those around you. Um, so so yeah, I think that's kind of the way to to deal with it. Yeah, as best you can. I, it's funny because uh, it goes back to the concept of yin and yang, where we are trained by our education system to be yang, 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 right? To keep pushing, 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 especially in the in in the work environment. And at some point, you just can't anymore, right? So you need to take care of yourself. And the yin it very much binds this idea of a community, which is very abstract and esoteric. It took me a while to understand, but it is really uh, the process is even more important than the outcome. So when it comes to the climate fight, the outcome will be there regardless. We, we're not in control. It's an externality at this point. But the process of bonding with people that are value aligned, that are really driven and that are beautiful, amazing uh, people, it is so rewarding on a daily basis. And so I invite everyone to join communities. I mean, this is what we're trying to, to build, right? And, um, and so I support you on joining. This is awesome. <laughs> Maybe uh, we can do part two. Arm in arm. Linking arms, linking arms for sure. Yes. Uh, next episode, you can talk, tell us all about the shaman pursuits. And Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you so much, chat. Awesome to have you here. Super insightful to follow your journey. Thank you, Johan. It's a pleasure to be here and to everyone listening. Um, yeah, reach out to Regen Intel and see, see how you can be part of our community. Let's merge communities and yes. support each other. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund, or startup. My newsletter is value-packed, authentic, and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier, and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.